Well, you know, out my office at Denver Seminary, I get to look at the front range and see the mountains, and uh, it's pretty spectacular. Uh, window views like that are coveted at the seminary, and, uh, but that's just nothing like being up here. This is so amazing. You guys live with us every day. I'm going to read a passage to you out of Deuteronomy chapter 22. Um, some of you may not even know that this is in the Bible. Deuteronomy 22, verses 28 and 29. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and rapes her, and they are discovered, he shall pay her father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the young woman, for he has violated her. He can never divorce her for as long as he lives. Have you ever heard that preached on? I have to confess I haven't either, and yet I believe this is one of the most significant passages in the Bible uh, for what it represents. Here's the question for you. Does this represent the redemptive heart of God as we know him today? If the answer is yes, why don't we obey it today? If the answer is no, what's it doing as a command in the law? Because it is in Deuteronomy. Moses is writing this down. It's one of those 613 commands that the Israelites had to obey. What's it doing there? It seems that God permits rape. Why didn't he just say, don't do it? Why did he say he has to marry her and pay her father 50 shekels of silver? Um, he can't divorce her. She doesn't seem to have any say in this passage. In fact, she doesn't have any say. In fact, the women didn't have any say in any of these passages. So now you're probably wondering, what in the world does this have to do with the title of the sermon? Why the heck are we here? I think this passage is very significant because if we can't wrestle with this passage, if we can't understand it, if we can't make sense of who God is in light of this passage, then all the other passages, they're just too easy. There's a lot of religions that use words like peace, love, being kind to one another, uh, and yet these passages are in the Bible for a reason. So what do you do with that? Does this represent the God that we know? If so, why don't we obey it today? And if not, what's it doing is a command in the law. I'm going to read you another one. It's just the chapter before that. There's a lot we could choose from. I happen to pick two just as an example to uh, illustrate what I want to say. It's in chapter 21, starting in verse 10. When you go to war, in fact, we'll make these our marching orders of our military in Afghanistan. You tell me what you think. When you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. That's a, very sanit that's a sanitized translation. You have sex with her. That's what it says. Bring her into your home, shave her head, trim her nails, put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother a full month, then you may go to her and be your husband, and she shall be your wife. But wait a minute, didn't we just read a couple chapters earlier that you can't marry foreign women? And he just gave him permission. If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. But I thought divorce was wrong. 
You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. So in the first passage, they're not allowed to divorce. In the second passage, if he doesn't like her, he can let her go. If I got your attention? I see a whole bunch of people smiling out there. Does this represent the redemptive heart of God? God as we know him? If so, what's it doing? Why don't we obey it? If so, if not, what's it doing as a command in the law? I'll say it again. I think these are some of the most critical passages because of what they represent. They represent that part of our faith system that we're, we don't know what to do with, honestly. Most, most Christians across the country, if you ask them, when I ask my students at the seminary, one out of a thousand will even have an idea how to approach this passage. What do you do with it? It represents the, if you will, the underbelly of what it means to serve the Lord. That's how people feel about it. How many of you feel uncomfortable with these passages? That they're even in the Bible? Oh, good. It's a normal group. Most of you. So we're going to talk about what do you do with these two passages, and there's plenty others like them. We have all the genocide texts. I'm sure you've read those. What do you do with those? There's a long list of passages. If we were in the classroom, we'd have time to take a bunch more if we had time. You know, the beginning to understand this is there's several places that we need to start. We need to start with some assumptions. Number one, God is a redemptive God. How many of you believe that? Okay. So somewhere, as we work our way through these passages, we have to get to that. And we have to look at why in the world did God do what he did? Why did he allow these passages to be in there? Why did he command it the way he did? And what we'll find is a model. A model not necessarily for how we are to relate to our culture, but a model of how God relates to culture through us. Which is something very different. Something very unusual. You know, way back in the beginning, I'm going to kind of create a timeline up here. So we got Genesis and the whole creation story here. And down at this end, we have Revelation and the, the new earth down here. And there's a lot of stuff that happens between those two points. And we get the privilege of living in this big mess that's in between. And back here in the beginning, what happened was, uh, you know the Christian story. Most of you, I think, Adam and Eve sinned. They fell. Uh, we use all kinds of terms to describe it. The result was that of that was we we're all broken. There's a big mess that's created right here. It's a very big mess. It's not God's mess. It's our mess. God's not the one that created it. He's not the one that causes all these things that happen in the world that we experience around us. We see, we read, we hear about. Do you see the uh, front page news article this week of the uh, Texas owner who uh, killed his ranch hand and the um, grand jury refused to indict him. He caught his, uh, one of his ranch hams doing something to his daughter that he shouldn't be doing and he beat him to death. It's a messy world, isn't it? It's a broken world. It's terrible. It's a terrible place in some respects when you look into the hearts of people and the brokenness of people. Some are perpetrators, some are victims. But it's still a big mess. And so God begins to do something very interesting because he cares about this mess. He cares about this world. He cares about culture. He cares about you and your family, your individuals, you as individuals. He cares about your children, your spouses, your parents. He cares about Summit County. 
He cares about the world. In fact, he cares about all of creation. Romans 8 says all of creation is groaning, waiting for the redemption that God is going to bring. But he does something very interesting with the text. He slowly begins to give this passage, these passages. He begins to speak into the world, and in the process of doing that, he begins to untangle or unravel this mess of sin, this mess of brokenness. And he does it very slowly, very patiently, very gradually. So that's the basic thing you need to understand, is that God, through the giving of his word, is untangling this mess. What that means is, is if you're on this side of it and you receive the passage or the word from the Lord, it's going to be redemptive and it's going to be encouraging. If you're on this side of it, looking back, it's really hard to understand, isn't it? It's very difficult. And the further away you get from the event, the more archaic it looks. Well, if that was written in around 1500 B.C., we're talking, you know, 3,500 years later, we're looking at, a, at something far distant in the past. Very hard for us to understand. We don't live in that world. In fact, there's nothing about our world that even compares with this. There's no scenario where we would ask a woman to, rape, to marry the man who raped her. None. But if we come back to here, we see something very wonderful. We see the Lord taking steps. So the first thing you have to remember is that all of Scripture is redemptive for somebody, just not you. Not directly. And there's a whole bunch in this book that's not redemptive to you directly. But yet when you dig in, you begin to see how God is a caring and loving God. Now, your Bibles are put in order thematically. They're not put in the order they were written. And so sometimes it's hard to do this exercise. But if you were to read the Bible as best you could get it into the order it was written, you would see this unfolding of God's movement in Scripture. Okay, let me go back to the first passage and describe to you what happened within the culture. What was going on at the time that God is going to act? Because I believe every one of these passages shows that God, number one, cares about culture. And number two, he's moving to redeem culture. That's his desire. And the way he redeems culture is by redeeming people within the culture. That's us. And so by starting this journey of, of redeeming people, he begins to move culture in a different direction. In fact, I think it's safe to say that culture, for the most part, is headed towards destruction. It is. If you want to see what culture looks like without a Christian influence, travel with me to India or Nepal and just take a look at it. Africa, and just see what it looks like. Culture is headed for disaster, and the Bible, as God begins to reveal it, starts this turn away from that direction. All right, so what was it like for a virgin in the 1500s BC, 2nd millennium BC? We actually have an example of that in 2 Samuel 13. I'm going to tell you the story rather than take you there. It's the story of Amnon and Tamar. They were both uh, children of David, King David, different mothers, same father. Amnon had a thing for Tamar, and so uh, at the advice of one of his counselors, he pretends to be uh, sick, and he invites her into his bedchambers, and then he rapes her. As he's about to do that horrible act, she says, please don't do this, this horrible thing. Ask my father, he will give me to you as a wife. He doesn't listen. And so he abuses her, and then, um, as is common, he's done with her. So he kicks her out. So as he kicks her out, uh, she says, please don't do this second horrible thing. 
Ask my father, and he will give me to you as a wife. He doesn't listen, slams the door shut. She's standing on the streets of Jerusalem. The door slams shut behind her. Now, what you have to realize is that Jerusalem, at this time, at, during King David's reign, was only about six acres. I mean, that's just not very big. You look at your study Bibles or go online, Google it, and you can see where the original wall of David was. Very small town. No secrets in a town, especially that small. And so she's really stuck with a dilemma because at this time in the world, in world history, uh, women were considered property. They were owned. So she has no options because she can't marry because she's no longer a virgin. And if she does try to pretend that she is and she's married, the punishment was execution. So she's standing on the street corner with no options. So she does the only culturally acceptable thing. She tears her garments, which is a sign that I'm no longer a virgin. So her brother Absalom takes her in, where she stays for the rest of her life, by the way, um, dishonored, shamed, and uh, nobody does anything about it. Two years later, Absalom murders Amnon, He waited for his father David to act, and his father didn't act, and so he steps in and does it. And that begins that seven-year journey where Absalom eventually wins over the hearts of the people and kicked David out of the city of Jerusalem. This, This law was there to protect her. It was there for her benefit. Because you see, the way that the way that honor was conceived of 1500 BC was very different than today. Today, we look at people as individuals. We look at people, what goes on inside the heart of a person, inside the soul. And uh, back then, they never even thought about that. We don't have any record of anyone ever looking at the inside of a person prior to Christ, believe it or not. Even the Greek philosophers, Aristotle, Plato, they talked about vice and virtue from a behavior perspective, not the inside of the person. This is a dark world that they lived in, very superstitious. They didn't have science. They couldn't understand the world around them. Women were considered property. So God gives this passage, this command, and what David should have done was he should have marched right over to Amnon's house and said, I know what you did to my daughter. So here's the way it works. You're going to pay me 50 shekels of silver, not because I need it, but because it's going to be a sacrifice for you, which, by the way, I'll keep for my grandkids. And then you're going to marry her and you're going to restore her honor amongst all these friends. You're going to bear children through her. That's how honor was established in 1500 BC. And if you don't, or you treat her inappropriately, you know what we're going to do? We're going to drag you out in the streets and stone you. That's what should have happened. That would have been protective for Tamar. Instead, she's tucked away in her brother's house, shamed because no one stood up for her except her brother, but he didn't have any power. Well, it does something a little more significant than that as well. It began to separate Israel from the rest of the nations. It's not a surprise that people, men, raped their virgins. Every country in the world at that time did that. What's a surprise is that God said stop, or at least respond well and take care of them if you do that. Let's move to the second passage because that adds a little bit, sheds a little bit more light. We're in a walled village. 
Okay, so the Israelites come and they attack and God gives a village into their hands. So we're all sitting in a walled village. We wake up one day and we're surrounded by this army. Okay, remember Jerusalem's only about six or eight acres. In fact, the largest towns, Jericho, is only about six or eight acres. That's how you can march around it seven times in a day. So we wake up and we're surrounded by this army. And uh, they've besieged us. And so one of two things are going to happen. Either our men are going to defeat them or their men are going to defeat our men. Those are the only two options, basically. Because the predominant worldview at that time was that you have what I want, and I'm stronger than you, so I'm going to come take it. I'm going to take your gold, I'm going to take your animals, I'm going to take your uh, livestock, uh, whatever you have of possessions. That's how I get bigger and bigger and stronger. So the warring went on, these little city-states, and so you have these people surrounding this. We wake up and they're surrounding our village. We know what they're there for. Well, here's what's going to happen. Let's say that they besiege us, and by the end of the week they break through the walls, and our men are not able to, um, not able to take care of them. They're not able to handle them. So they win, we lose. What happens to us? This is very common military strategy, second millennium BC. First thing they do is kill all the men. That, that way there's no threat. If they didn't kill them, they'd pluck out the right eye and cut off the right hand. We actually have some examples of that in scripture. That way they can't shoot a bone arrow. So militarily, they were no longer a threat. They typically killed the men. They typically killed the old people because the old people were, weren't, weren't useful for anything for their purposes. That may be what's behind let her grieve her mother and her father for 30 days. Okay, who's left? The women. More the younger women. And then they could do whatever they wanted with the women. So women, here's a question for you. We read this passage that uh, when you, when you, if, if you, uh, you can't kill these young women, um, you have to treat them with kindness. You have to bring them into your house, clean them, let them mourn their, uh, their, their parents who have died for 30 days. All right, so wh what would you rather, if you woke up and you saw an army that had circled you and besieged you, would you rather it be the Israelite army who's going to treat you with respect, or would you rather it be the Canaanite army who's going to do whatever they want? And remember, we're 3,500 years later. Nothing about this makes sense to us, looking back. But if you lived here in the moment, All of a sudden, you had a God who protected you. It was a foregone conclusion that men were going to be executed. God hadn't dealt with that bit yet. That comes later on. So he starts with the people who can't take care of themselves, the young women. Let's protect them. You can't rape them. You can't murder them. You have to treat them carefully. So he starts there, and then slowly over time, he begins to reverse the whole sense of ethics so pretty soon you get to what Christ talks about. We're peacemakers. We don't need, even need to fight, fight each other. Can you see how both those passages in the moment would be protective? So if you're here and you receive it and you live in that world that you're in, it was designed to protect you. If you're on the other side of it, looking back, it's very difficult to understand. And the further you get away, the more challenging it is to understand. It's very, it's very hard for us today. And yet that was the reality of the world they lived in. Remember, all scripture is redemptive 
for someone, just not you. At least not directly. Okay, now let's take a step out, further out and look at the world scene and what's going on. When you begin to look at these commands and these laws, what you discover is that God is having a very significant influence in a very dark world. All of a sudden, Israel begins to look very different than all the nations around them. What? You mean you don't rape your virgins? What? You don't steal other people's women when you attack their villages? They began to look different. Now, I'm going to read you another passage out of Exodus. Israel has only been out of um, slavery for about three months. They're at the base of Mount Sinai. Listen to what the Lord says. This is what you are to say, this is what God says to Moses, to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. First of all, these words are absolutely wonderful. You know why? Because the gods never spoke. Well, we now know that they were dead, but they didn't know that. And so out of nowhere, there's this true God who speaks to them and said, here's what I want you to know. I'm going to write down the rules. You don't have to have these secret, these secret cults and all these mystery religions to figure it out. I'm just going to tell you. If you obey me, I will make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This isn't, a, this isn't about if you disobey, you're not going to be. That's not how it's meant to be. If you obey these commands, you will begin to look different than the cultures around you. This is a statement about cultural impact. This is a statement about the Lord God loves people. He loves his creation. By the way, he loves Summit County. He loves his county. And so his way, which I think is ingenious, is to start with changing people. People begin to look different. All of a sudden, Israel looks different. It was a little bit longer before God says, treat your virgins completely differently. Don't even do that to them. And it's a little bit longer before he says, don't attack your neighbors. Don't do that to them. But he starts very slowly untangling this whole mess and separating the people of Israel from the rest of the world. A holy nation. That just means that they're an example. They're distinctly different from the world around them. These two passages show two very critical ways that Israel was different than the surrounding nations. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, even the Egyptians. They look very different. This is turning them into a holy nation because they look different. By the way, the other part of that passage is that uh, he would make them a um, kingdom of priests. When I was here a month ago or so, I asked the question, for those of you that were over at the church, what are you becoming? A kingdom of priests. A priest can't be a priest on their own behalf. That's a statement about impact within culture, within the world in which you live. You can't be a priest on your own behalf. That's never allowed under any system. And so when he says that you are a kingdom of priests... By the way, that means us, kingdom of priests. Peter, in 1 Peter, uses that same verse to apply it to the church. We're a kingdom of priests. You know what the first question we should ask is? 
On behalf of whom? I'm not a priest for my benefit. That's why you're there. I'm a priest on behalf of you. We're a priest on behalf of each other. And as a collective community of faith, we're a kingdom of priests on behalf of a culture that desperately needs to be loved. So these two passages in Deuteronomy, they give us something very different, a different perspective. They help us to see that God really cares about the world in that he begins to teach Israel how to respect people and treat them with honor. And it's a very slow, remember I said, it's a very slow process. As he gives his Bible, over these 2,000 years, he just very slowly begins to untangle this mess. And he begins to put in place a whole different way of thinking that the world would never come to if God had not spoken. Now, we have the privilege of living down here 3,500 years later, and our sense of ethics is very strong and growing stronger every generation. And I praise God for that. We don't rape people. We don't murder people. We don't steal people's things. Of course we don't do that. But it took a long road to get here. By the way, that's one of the significance of Christianity. If you look at Christianity over the history of the world, they have contributed, yes, to some very bad things, but they have laid the foundation every step of the way for dignity, for honoring people, for loving people, for caring for people, for sacrificing for people. Like I said, if you want to see countries, if you've never been outside the United States, there are countries where Christianity has no influence. Go see it. Desperate. Horrible. Poverty. I hear the phrase sometimes that, well, in our country, you can't tell a Christian from a non-Christian. Well, what's wrong with that? Why is that so bad? That means that, that... some of the principles we believe in are being upheld. If all of us show dignity to one another, then, yeah, it's going to be hard to tell the difference. Right? Do you want to live in a world where they don't show dignity to one another? I don't. I've been in those places. So it's a good thing. This is not a bad thing. It's amazing how I hear that in the literature today. So, God, through the process of giving his word, what that means is, simply put, Every time we see these passages, he is slowly changing his people. Why? So they know how to love the people around them better. That's what it means. If you didn't know it was wrong to do some of these things, there's nothing inside of you that would lead you to that conclusion. Right? And so the Bible, as it unfolds, gives us all of those. So now we can make sense of almost all these very difficult passages because they all lead us someplace. They all lead us to a new place, a new way of thinking. And every time one of these verses comes along, then we look different from the people around us. And that difference is what allows us to love well, quite honestly. So when we're with people that haven't yet learned what it means to show respect and dignity to one another, when we show respect and dignity... That's loving people. That's what it is. So the question I asked you a month ago as the church was, uh, what are you becoming? The question I asked you today is, what does that look like in Summit County? I don't know. I don't live here. But you do. When I teach in India, my students ask me, what does it look like in India? I don't know. I don't live there. <laughs> you tell me. What does it mean for you in Summit County to be people with such integrity and intentionality in loving the rest of the people 
around us that they can't help but be drawn. I hope when we get to heaven, I get to ask what it looked like from the Hittites' perspective. What was it like for the Canaanites when they looked at this young nation, Israel? And they started looking differently. They stopped raping people. They stopped murdering people. It took a while. They stopped dishonoring people. I wonder what it was like from their perspective. I don't know the answer to that. What is it like for the people of Summit County when they look at us? Are we different? Do we know how to love them well? Does that help you understand some of these complex passages a little bit? Puts it in a framework in an ancient culture that helps you to see that God is, from the beginning, cares very much for his creation. Not just the people of Dillon community. Not just believers, unbelievers. No, no, no. He cares about all of creation. All of it. And so the way God reaches culture is through us. Through us doing what we're supposed to do. Loving each other, caring for each other. Loving each other well in a healthy way. I thank the Lord that I wasn't born way back then, although I have a feeling if I was born back here, I would still be praising the Lord because I could see him doing something redemptive even though I wouldn't understand the rest of my life was a mess. And I thank the Lord that 3,500 years later, we have a very, well, a very developed sense of ethics about what is right and wrong and good and how to treat people, how to be kind to people. And I'm thankful for 3,500 years of, of believers who, who listened to this and tried to make sense of it and turn it into something good. What a world we live in. So when you read these passages, these old passages, don't be afraid of them. It's okay. Because the Bible is such a long book covering a long history. And every passage shows the redemption of God. His movement within culture to redeem them. To turn it around. Don't be afraid of them. Look at the, Go read these old passages. Read some of the ones in Numbers. Leviticus, go read the prophets, read the kings, and ask yourself, what in the world was God doing to be redemptive in that particular setting? If you start asking that question, what was the, what was the problem in culture that God is trying to fix? He's trying to repair, he's trying to grow, he's trying to improve. You start asking that question, the Bible looks very different. It's no longer a rule book. It's a history of a living God who cares very much. And every one of these commands is, at that moment in time, is helping someone in need. Let me pray for you. Father, we are grateful for your patience. Lord, I, um, I'll be the first to admit that uh, I get more impatient with the people who, aren't, uh, who are around me. I'm thankful that you showed me patience uh, during all the rough years of my own life. And even today, thank you for overlooking my own failures and my own faults. Thank you, Lord, for overlooking my sinfulness and instead moving powerfully in my life just to help me with it. Thanks that when I trip and fall, you forgive me. Thank you, Lord, when I hurt others, you, uh, you're very gracious to them and you show them how to... Uh, overcome that.
Thank you, Lord, for my friends in the community in which I live who love me. Um, thank you, Lord, for giving us a way to partner with you in infecting this culture. Thank you for giving us your word and for helping us to make sense of it. Thanks for loving people down through all the ages. And Lord, thank you most of all that you care about this entire creation. Help us to uh, live lives worthy of that. In Jesus' name, amen.